Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, we look at the year ahead with many analysts expecting a series of interest rate cuts by the U.S. Fed. Dick Beauvais will examine what this means for the economy, the federal government, banks and businesses across America. We look at reports that many companies may have grown their profit margins substantially on the back of inflation to record levels at the peak of rising prices the past two years. These companies may now be challenged to grow profits by expanded unit sales instead in the coming year, according to Beauvais. We look at the latest on US manufacturing, with spending on manufacturing operations up since 2022. Banks continue to lose ground to other financial companies in America, and with banks increasingly marginalized in the mortgage origination sector. We'll also look at the various conflicts and hotspots across the globe, from the Ukraine to the Middle East, to troubled areas in Africa and South America. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick, welcome for episode 102 and happy new year to you. Matt is away on vacation and he will be back next week. Quite a a strange and interesting year passed. We didn't have that recession that everybody was anticipating, but there was a lot of positives. Uh, Inflation was finally beaten, and now we're looking forward to 2024. Where do you see the year ahead, Dick? But before we get into that, you sent me this interesting quote, and I would like to read it here. It's from a Russian socialite, and the world is unfair, she says. It was, it is, and always will be. Somewhere they're killing, somewhere children are starving, somewhere at this time they're drinking champagne, celebrating quite a dichotomy. Yeah, well, what she's putting out, pointing out is reality. Uh, the reality is that uh, as long as man has been walking on the earth, there have been people who have uh, succeeded, and there have been people who have not for any number of reasons, health, etc. Um, so basically, um, when they had this big party, apparently in Moscow uh, a week ago, uh, which was uh, come as uh, come as your almost naked party, uh, and I guess one guy showed up with just a pair of socks uh, oh, wrapped geez. around his uh, private parts. Oh my gosh! Uh, the Russian press got very upset about it because you know hundreds of thousands of Russians are being uh, injured and killed in in Ukraine. 
So it became a big issue. And, and this lady, who is the daughter of the uh, mayor of St. Petersburg, and who mayor of St. Petersburg is the guy who started Putin on his career. Um, anyway, the point is that uh, she, she just said this thing, you know, uh, you know, some people are starving, some people are drinking champagne, you know, it's, uh, it's quite <laughs> bizarre. Um, Jeffrey Tucker, one one quote here from Jeffrey Tucker of the Brownstone Institute. He says, more than ever in my life, we approach the new year with a sense of impending doom. And he points to the crazy stuff that's coming out of the White House and the tone the White House is setting. He doesn't think a very positive tone. And then he goes on to say, in the real world where we all live, these days are utterly packed with dread about not yet seen crisis. And he said, you know, in private circles, academics and in the intelligentsia and the business community worry about civil unrest, maybe a takedown of the internet, the all the wars out there, the central bank, uh, maybe launching a digital currency, climate lockdowns and civil strife in our cities and just general mayhem everywhere, border crossings. You go on and it's just not a great picture. And yet there are a lot of positives out there because I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal headline says optimism flows on Wall Street fueled by economy and the rise of AI. And that's this morning. The world's a very scary place at the present time. Uh, it's a scary place because there's conflict, uh, you know, in every, in every continent except North America. You know, you have Venezuela wanting to uh, move into uh, Guyana to take over the oil fields there. You have, uh, you know, the Canadian, the uh, Canadian, the Chinese coming in, building a port in um, Peru, a point, uh, a port in Argentina, cutting a deal in which they pretty much have gained control of the whole oil supply of Ecuador. Um, you know, so whatever. James Monroe thought about when he wrote the Monroe Doctrine, you know, is something which uh, isn't even considered. Um, in, in Africa, you've got, you know, just civil wars everywhere. I guess uh, the, the biggest ones are in Sudan, Ethiopia, and the Democratic uh, Republic of the Congo. Uh, and again, you, you see the hand of the Chinese all over, you know, that country, uh, that that continent, and of course the the Wagner Group, which uh, you know was part of this guy Prigozhin's uh, army, is now integrated in the the, the Russian army, and they're in every uh, country in in Central Africa. I mean, right right straight across from uh, you know one side of the continent to the other. Uh, basically, you know, holding up the governments, which are dictatorships in, in the main. When, when you go to Asia, you know, you've got all of this uh, potential conflict between China and virtually every one of its neighbors. I mean, we talk about Taiwan all the time, but Vietnam is furious at China uh, because of this uh, decision that China has made that the South China Sea belongs to China. And, you know, Vietnam doesn't think that's true. Uh, neither does uh, the Philippines. The Philippines has actually had some uh, con conflict between their uh, one naval ship, I guess, that they had out there and, and, and the Chinese Navy. So, you know, everybody's, you know, up in arms. Everybody is filled with, with and of course, I, I just skipped over the biggest one of all, the biggest two of all. You know, th there is a, a war in Europe, uh, you know, between Russia and Ukraine, which is actually, you know, unique given the fact that had been no major wars in Europe. I mean, you've got Azerbaijan, uh, you know, which was just uh, picked out, kicked out of uh, in 
in Nagorno Karabakh, I think I said that right. Mm. Um, Azerbaijan just kicked Armenia out of that place, and they apparently now seem to want to get all of Armenia. Uh, you've got um, the problems uh, in in uh, the country that we used to, Moldova. Moldova, that's the one I'm thinking of. You know, they want to be part of Russia. Uh, and you've got, uh, you know, this thing in, in uh, Israel uh, and, and uh, Hamas, uh, which is expanding now because apparently uh, Iran has got a warship that they launched in the uh, Red Sea today or yesterday or whenever it was. So, you know, y- you seem to have all these all of these countries and all of these people and all of these countries who want to fight with each other, who want to kill each other. Uh, and, you know, the stock market is ignoring the whole thing, doesn't care about it. Uh, it it's ignoring everything. Um, and I don't know if it's because they just believe that nothing is going to come from these things that are going to affect the, the economy of the United States, or if they look at the fact and say, hey, the market goes up in wartime. I, I don't, you know, it's, it's hard to say, but, you know, the stock market is ignoring what's going on in all of these places. And there are a lot of them in which there is physical confrontation. It is truly remarkable, and and maybe it speaks to the fact that we're still manufacturing. Our oil production is still holding pretty steady. We haven't hit $100 a barrel, as some were predicting last year. We're getting through it. And then, of course, we have the Houthis um, rest of in the Suez Canal and interrupting supplies, and yet supplies are still getting through. You sent me a, a list here, Dick, and Geneva Academy lists all these conflicts around the world, 45 armed conflicts in the Middle East and North Africa, 35 in the remaining part of Africa, 31 in Asia, 7 in seven in Europe, I guess that includes Ukraine, obviously, 6 in South America, none in North America. And we have the Middle East, Israel, Palestine, and Libya, Sudan, Ethiopia, Republic of Congo, and just, this is as close to a world war as we've ever been. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and that's what's, that's what I find very frightening. But if we, if we step away from the, you know, it, it, as soon as the stock market's right, that nothing bad is going to come from this, um, we do have something tangible that affects the United States economy that comes from it to the degree that countries associated with China and the, Russia, you know, have set up uh, trade and and financial uh, commerce with the countries that they now dominate. It reduces the size of the market that the United States can can get at. Um, number one and number two, you know, in China itself, you know, they basically have kicked out you know companies like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, you know, Citigroup, uh, you know. Uh, you know, th- these countries were, were deeply into the Chinese financial system. They built it. They taught the Chinese how to uh, operate it. Uh, and now the Chinese have, have marginalized them to the point where, uh, in many cases, they don't participate in anything that's going on in that area. So, you know, if, uh, you know, you get uh, a whole bunch of countries in Latin America, you know, whether it's Bolivia or, or Peru or Argentina or uh Venezuela or Cuba, that, that, that's a lot of countries in, in, in South America that don't want to do business with the United States. I mean, Bolivia is a perfect example. I mean, you know, Bolivia has, the, the, actually, I've been to Bolivia and I've seen these, these things. Um, they have these massive salt flats, which are just covered with lithium. It was the decision of the uh, government of Bolivia that they would not uh, allow any Western uh, 
investment in that lithium because they were going to develop it themselves. They were going to build car companies, uh, you know, battery companies, uh, and literally car companies. Uh, and then all of a sudden, China comes along and they sell the rights of this lithium to China. I mean, so they just cut us off. They cut us off from doing, and that's what Ecuador, you know, with its, you know, tie-in to to uh, China. Venezuela apparently is now opening up a bit to the United States with with its oil uh, operations, but they want to conquer eighty-five percent of a country called Guyana because apparently Guyana yeah. is is the, the discovered massive amounts of oil. And anyway, the point the point I'm trying to make here is, yeah, we've got a military and you know difficult conflicts there but you know to the degree that we lose you know position in all of these countries we lose the ability to do business with them and as we lose the ability to do business with them that imp impacts our exports and you know it reduces our exports while we continue to increase buying stuff from uh, southeast asia so it ruins our uh, trade deficit it impacts the growth of the u.s economy so these things are scary from one perspective, but on a longer-term basis, they're scary because the, the United States is getting pushed out everywhere. And I, you know, since Matt isn't here, I'll, I'll state his point of view, which is, you know, Washington does nothing. Mm. It does nothing. This this immigration crisis in the United States. All right, if the president believes that the borders should stay open, he should get on television and explain to the American public why he believes that this immigration should stay open. All right, uh, and I'm going I'm to give you another story about my family. All right. Well, we love your family stories. I just want to uh, mention, Dick, and get your thoughts also. And let's talk about the border because that's in the news. It's going to be a, obviously an issue in this year's presidential elections. It's, it's got to be. Xi Jinping has finally acknowledged his economy is having real problems. He just said that in his year-end speech. People are having trouble finding jobs. A survey of manufacturers in China showed December factory activity contracted for the third straight month and the economy is um, limping along 2022 it had it grew by three percent that's historically quite low it has a property crisis is this suggesting to us also that the world economy is slowing because it's the manufacturing hub for a yeah. lot of the goods we consume yeah no i, I think it does i think it uh, does indicate that basically um you know the world economy is slowing down here because uh if if I mean, China clearly has slowed down dramatically. Japan is, is uh, you know, using all sorts of economic stimulus at the present time to get their economy going. And, um, you know, the United States will see. Uh, I, 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 think, I think the United States economy is slowing down on the consumer side, although people are saying that, uh, you know, this was a great Christmas season, everything's back to normal. Uh, but we, we're talking about only 2% growth. In terms of uh, you know goods being purchased at stores, and that's that's not particularly robust. So um, yeah, no, I, th I think um, this 2024 is is difficult. But you know, you you will like this story because basically, um, I got my my nephew owns over five dozen Dunkin' Donuts shops, right? And the state of Massachusetts, you know, believes that immigration 
uh, you know, the borders should be open. So they've got two hotels in Massachusetts, which are filled with people who are immigrants. Um, so what my nephew did was he went to this place and he hired an interpreter to teach these people English. He hired 21 of the people, got them social security cards, they're paying taxes, all this other stuff. But, you know, what interested me was, you know, he, he found a way to resolve his problem with locating local labor because, you know, Americans want a lot of money, et cetera. And he's found this labor pool that he's tapping into. And I have to believe that uh, there's got to be hundreds of companies around the United States who are doing the same thing. I mean, he literally now has on his staff a teacher who is teaching these people English, teaching them how to file papers, teaching them how to do what is necessary. And they're working and they work extremely hard because they want the jobs. They, they want a way to begin life in the country. And again, I, I don't think he's the only one doing this. I think that there's got to be uh, hundreds of other companies which are doing the same thing. So these were, just to be clear, um, came across the southern border, made their way up northeast. Put on a bus, right? Yeah. Texas put them on a bus. You know, they were sent to Chicago, they were sent to New York, and a whole bunch were sent to Boston, you know, and, and Massachusetts, right? Mm -hmm. So essentially, they came across the border illegally. They were put on buses by, you know, the Texans. The Texans sent them to Massachusetts. He sees this labor pool sitting there, and he taps it. So uh, he's he hired all these. He's hired 21 of these people. But he's also hired a, a teacher, you know, to get them acclimated to the economy, because who knows, you know, w what's going to happen with these people. I mean, I, I, were they going to be deported at some point or not? I don't know. But anyway, the bottom line is the, these people were being are being integrated into the economy. And that's what uh, I think was kind of fascinating about what he's doing. That's a positive upside and uh, a kudos to him for employing them and putting them to work because that's ultimately the solution. Uh, it's just the chaos in the border has people really troubled. Um, there's no disclosure. Nobody understands the system that's in place. And then there's questions about um, terrorists getting through with these hordes coming in across the border. Nobody's, I mean, America has been a refuge for immigrants for, for generations, for the poor and hungry masses and so on. No, nobody's saying we stop that, but there has to be some kind of seamless system that works. But yeah, your, well, your your family member seems to have got a nice workaround here. Yeah, well, you know, there's a book uh, called uh, We Are Human Too, which, um, you know, it was just, published uh, in, in which they give the stories of like 50 of these people who come in to the country illegally, what it's like for them in the country, how they, a whole bunch of them are now PhDs, a whole bunch of them have written books, a whole bunch of them are, you know, have raised families, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I, I am a strong believer that we should have, a, you know, a wall at the border. I mean, I'm not, I have not changed my opinion. I believe we should have a wall. I believe that unrestricted immigration is bad. But the point is, uh, we are seeing workarounds. Uh, and there's another book coming out, uh, I guess, in, in a month or so, written by uh, a guy who came when he was nine years old and what it was like to come up through the, the system, you know, into into the United States. Um, and, and he's now, obviously, he's he's been through college. He's 
get a bunch of advanced degrees and he's written this book, which I have not read because it's not been published yet. Um, and then there's another example, you know, this guy from Cuba who, uh, you know, uh, he was told that he was part of the Cuban government. He was told to take, uh, you know, a bat and go out into these riots and just hit people with the bat. Yeah. He didn't want to do it, so he went through Nicaragua, came all the way up into the United States. He's working as a trucker right now. So we'll see what the ultimate result is here. But I do think, number one, that there should be a wall. I do think that the president should uh, explain why he doesn't have one there. And uh, But I'm also looking at the other side. These people are not taking jobs away from Americans because America has this low unemployment rate. They are getting integrated into our economy. And hopefully... Um, Hopefully that will result in good things. We've spoken frequently on our podcast about the um, demographic crisis throughout the Western world and in the US, uh, low birth rates, not replacing ourselves. In, in the case of America, that's offset by high levels of immigration, at least traditionally. You've had numerous statistics on this, Dick. I heard one, I think it was in 2021. In, in the case of America, the population grew by one point something million. Um, one million of those, of that population increase, came from immigration. In other words, the natural increase was, was really low. So if we don't have these immigrants coming in to fill jobs, our economy ultimately will grind to a halt. We won't be able to finance our uh, retirement packages, our social security, and all of those things that are necessary for a functioning economy. Yeah, no, you're right. We need the population to grow. Um, and um, it may not be happening the way we think it should happen, because in 2038, which, you know, is seems a long way away from now, but it is not, there'll be more deaths in the United States than there are births. Uh, and without immigration, the population will decline. So, and that, you know, as, as you correctly mentioned, John, uh, that, that affects Social Security, Medicare, all this other stuff in terms of payments, taxes, you know, the government. Uh, but it also affects consumption. You know, it, you're going to consume fewer houses, fewer cars. You're going to consume fewer of all sorts of goods which are being produced, and it's just not good for the economy. So, I mean, we, we haven't figured out how to handle this thing, and we apparently refuse to figure it out in Washington. But the fact is that it is getting worked out somehow uh, with with these stories that, that, that I'm telling you. Let's talk about the economy and where we're at with the Fed, Dick, but the trajectory of interest rate cuts. Um, an interesting stat, and you've referenced this yourself also, um, we're in a presidential election year. And according to Dow Jones market data, the S&P 500 has risen in 73.9% of presidential election years. So markets usually rise during uh, election year. So given that and interest rates expected to be cut, where do you see it? What kind of a year could we be facing? Well, you know, the reason why, you know, you have the stock market doing so well in election years is because whoever the president is, Republican or Democrat, you know, makes the same, you know, point of view, which essentially is he, he stimulates the economy. Uh, and he stimulates the economy because when November rolls around, uh, he doesn't want 
uh, what happened to George Bush, the first one, ha happened to whoever happens to be the president. I mean, if, if you recall, George Bush, you know, w was very, very unhappy with the Federal Reserve because they tightened monetary policy. The economy was weakening during that presidential election, and he lost to, to uh, Clinton. All right. So every, every president understands that. You know, every president understands you got to have a strong economy if you want to get reelected. Now, the problem that you have this year is that, you know, we, we, we can't have, we're not getting any budgets approved. And, you know, you know, the, the, the group of Republicans in the, in the House of Representatives are, you know, laying down the law that the budget has to be shrunk. So there won't be any fiscal stimulus coming out of Washington this particular year. And that puts real pressure on the economy. Uh, and basically, it, it's 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 going to be interesting to see how it works out this year, um, you know, because you won't get the normal uh, fiscal stimulus, you won't get the normal spending surges, you won't get all of the things that generally happen in a presidential election year, because the the economy, I'm sorry, because the politicians are so adamant on both sides that they can't seem to come together. You say that it appears that the Federal Reserve will fade as the key driver of financial and economic events. That's referring to this year, 2024. Last year, the Fed had an outsized impact on what happened in markets and profitability and investments and so on. But that's fading. That's good. It's a new paradigm. Yes. In other words, since the pandemic began and the United States started running these incredibly sizable deficits and the Federal Reserve had to step in in 2020 and 2021 on 2019 and 2020, I forget which two years, but they bought 52% of the debt created by the United States. All right. So the Federal Reserve, you know, was basically suckering up the economy, uh, you know, in that period, number one. And then number two, you know, the Federal Reserve, you know, raised interest rates, and that had a limited impact on the economy, but it had some impact. And now, you know, the Federal Reserve is in a position where it doesn't have to do anything. Uh, in, in other words, it doesn't look like we're going to get an outsized deficit, which they're going to have to buy or finance. It doesn't look like, you know, we're in a situation where they have to uh, tamp down on inflation because even though inflation is still not where they want it to be, it's it's not it's not you know going to cause a major event within the economy. So we don't need the Federal Reserve to do anything, and the Federal Reserve has got its own problems. The first problem is that it loses you know ten billion dollars a month, actually loses money. And the Treasury has to give that money back to the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve wouldn't be able to function because it is losing $10 billion a month. Second thing is that they don't have any real equity. The real equity at the Federal Reserve is $1.3 trillion less than what they claim it is. So if the Federal Reserve allows interest rates to stay flat or to come down, if there is no big, you know, government deficit to deal with, Federal Reserve is just not going to be a factor in the economy and the financial system in 2024, which obviously I, I think is extraordinarily positive because I don't think the Federal Reserve should be such a major factor in the economy. But it is the Federal Reserve right now is in high country, as they say, in, in the mm. sense that uh, as interest rates come down, their real equity starts to grow. They start that, that deficit starts to go away, 
Number one, number two, because they're borrowing so much money in the reverse repo market, as interest rates come down, it's reducing uh, their losses. So that the Fed, you know, who knows, by the end of this year, the Fed might actually be in a place where it's making a profit again, and where its uh, real equity is pretty close to its uh, stated equity. So for for the Fed, this is likely to be a very good year, unless there is some big horrendous recession. It should also have some upside for the federal government debt. The Treasury Department estimates that the gross interest on Treasury debt securities was $879 billion in fiscal 2023. This number could rise to a trillion this year without interest rate cuts. We're expecting cuts, of course. With cuts, according to your calculations, it could decline to a level below fiscal 2022's $718 billion. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. In other words, w- when we took take a look at how the federal government fares, they definitely uh, benefit by a decline in interest rates. They benefit in a very significant fashion because basically uh, the debt is, you know, 33, 34000000000000 trillion, whatever it is, uh, and, you know, the interest on that debt had risen to where it was the second highest amount of payments made by the U.S. government after, you know, uh, the, the social social security, human rights, Medicare, all this other stuff. Um, so you could actually see, you know, a decline in, in the interest payments being made by the federal government, which right now is not in the cards. But if interest rates go stay down and go lower, then it would be. In, in the cards. So that would be another major plus that would come to the economy as a result of uh, a reduction in interest rates, which, as I say, it hasn't happened yet. But but I, I agree with everybody else that it probably is going to happen by the middle of this year. Dick, why do you say will businesses be hurt by the loss of inflation? I mean, I guess it sounds counterintuitive. You would almost assume that inflation is not great for everyone, including businesses. Well, well, in other words, they have benefited by inflation. Now, again, this is a big debate. And, and on one side, you got Northwest University. On the other side, you got the New York University. And then the government is on the side of the Northwestern University people. They claim that you know for every let's say dollar that we see uh, they had to pay for the goods that they acquired they are charging a dollar 20. in other words and, and you know that i don't know what the exact numbers are but what they're saying is uh and they call it greedflation mm. that what businesses did through uh, the last couple of years as inflation went up they found that uh, there was no resistance to them increasing prices which of course was due to the big government uh, programs that were put into effect. As as we mentioned, you know, the government ran these huge deficits. They gave all this money to to people, to households across the United States. These people spent that money. You can call them these people. We spent that money. Mm. And essentially, businesses took advantage of it. And therefore, their their margins went up. Their margins didn't go down. If, If they were being hurt by inflation, their margins would have been reduced. But, you know, they weren't. They went up. So the net effect is New York University say, yeah, well, the margins may have gone up. But basically, if you take a look at where the prices went up the fastest, you didn't see margin increases in businesses. It was where prices went up at a slower rate that you saw the margin increases. So as I say, you know, 
six months from now, a year from now, some university will come out with an in-depth, detailed study as to whether businesses took advantage of inflation by increasing their prices more than their costs. Um, but we, we, don't, we don't know at the moment what it is. Most people believe uh, with Northwestern University that basically that's what they did. They took advantage of the inflation by increasing their prices, increasing their margins, and that held up their profits. Um, so now if inflation goes away, and if the consumer is now in a position where they've borrowed a huge amount of money, you, you can't get it by increasing prices anymore. You got to sell more products. Unit and, sales. And, yeah. So unit sales has to be the driver of the economy at this point. Uh, because they're not going to get it from margins. So you're saying that with, with many, with, we don't know how many companies, but maybe with a lot of companies, they profited from inflation by, in effect, price gouging to some degree. Well, I like to call it greedflation. <laughs> <laughs> I know if we'd met here, he would might disagree. <laughs> yeah, he objects to price gouging a lot. All right. But the point is, um, you, you know, we'll find out. We'll, you know, you got Lael Brainard, who is a, chief economic officer of the United States now saying that's what happened. You have Robert Wright, who uh, was the Secretary of Labor, saying that's what happened. You got this university saying that's what happened. But again, they're all Democrats, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you got to find some neutral party who, who does, you know, serious research, who, who gives us the answer. But at the moment, that's what seems to be the, 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 the predominant view. If it's true, then margins are not going to go up for companies in 2024. They got to sell more products. The Guardian newspaper back in April 2022 did a study of 100 U.S. corporations and found that net profits over a two-year period rose by a median 49%. And it said that was evidence of them price gouging, for want of another word. Um, yeah. But they did the profit margins were just phenomenal and that was as inflation was starting to peak it peaked a few months later at nine point something yeah but see you're right i mean basically that's that's the indicator if the margins of these companies went up it meant that not only were they passing along their cost increases but they were putting an increase above that the point is there has to be a, a serious study done industry by industry uh you know groups of companies by groups of companies to determine whether the Guardian newspaper and these other people are correct, saying that uh, you know businesses were were taking advantage of the inflation because the population had this significant amount of money, uh, you know, given to them by the government. So unit sales, we should look out for this year. You're expecting you're in that camp, take that, that we're going to have a series of interest rate cuts this year. Uh, there's no way they Fed might surprise us all. Because if there are surprises, then that's a whole other set of dynamics. Yeah, well, I mean, if if we put troops on the ground in Yemen to go fight the the Houthis, if we, uh, you know, take a more aggressive stance to Iran, you know, that's going to uh, stimulate economic activity, increase the deficit, create inflation again, and, you know, we're back in the hole that we were in when inflation was rising. And then interest rates wouldn't come down; they would go up. But um, I, I'm nobody's predicting that. I'm not predicting that. Um, so I, I I feel confident that by 
the middle of this year, the Federal Reserve will cut interest rates, not at the rate that people are saying. It's not, they're not going to cut them six times this year, but they might cut them two or three times this year, and that is, is extraordinarily positive. You have a note on manufacturing, which is something we've looked at on Odeon Capital Conversations, our podcast, on a regular basis. At one point, you were saying we're going to have a manufacturing renaissance in America, Dick. Um, it hasn't happened. Um, manufacturing is still weak, yet spending on manufacturing was up in 2022 by 40%. And in the first 10 months to 2023, it was up by 72%. And then we had the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. So maybe we're in some kind of a holding stage that we'll see those jobs coming online in another year or so because they've dug ground, as, as they say. And, you know, but the jobs aren't, uh, the jobs haven't arrived yet. They're still creating these plants around the country. Or is that a bit too optimistic? No, I, I don't think that's too optimistic. I think that's, you know, my view has been that we must get manufacturing going again in the United States. We cannot continue to have Americans borrowing money on their credit card to buy products which are manufactured in China and Southeast Asia. It's, it's just not a viable way to run an economy. And, you know, ultimately, the, the Americans run out of the ability to borrow money to, to buy the stuff from, you know, overseas because and they're not having the income because the jobs are where the manufacturing is being done. So ultimately, and it hasn't happened yet, and, and therefore I'm wrong in, in saying this, you know, a year ago that it would happen, uh, doesn't stop me from believing that it will happen. And I think that um, the reason why you see all these stocks soaring that are involved with artificial intelligence is because basically they are, uh, they have found a way to reduce the cost of manufacturing. In other words, they they have implemented systems, whether it's robotics or whether it's, uh, you know, the um, method of uh, moving funds uh, that, that lowers the cost of doing these things. And if, if artificial intelligence becomes more and more utilized, you know, I mean, everybody wants to talk about chatbot and all that other stuff. That's, you know not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with the fact that uh, it's artificial intelligence, which is used to lower the cost of producing goods, which is going to get manufacturing competitive worldwide and therefore stimulate the growth in the U.S. economy. And I, I believe strongly that that will happen. I, I, I think that it, things happen because they must happen, and that's something that must happen and it will happen. It has not happened in 2023. My bad. I believe in 2024, you will definitely see it. Well, in terms of AI, artificial intelligence, a lot of the innovations and the development has taken place here in the United States. So that's that's to our good if we implement it and execute it and we have the right leadership to roll out good programs. And we're seeing some positives there already. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> another personal story. And, and Christmas Eve, I had a lot of people at my house. And so basically, one of the things that came up is, what does artificial intelligence do? And the person asked, who asked the question is a pilot for Delta Airlines, right? Uh, a captain, actually. And uh, he said that uh, artificial intelligence doesn't mean anything. It's not going to do anything. So I had to explain that, you know, when he flies a plane, 
he takes it up into the air and then he flips it on to the to the computers and the computers handle that flight unless some unusual event occurs where he has to get involved again but he doesn't touch he doesn't touch that that flying of that plane until it's time to land a plane and then he lands the plane right so what's doing the flying of that plane artificial intelligence that's what's flying the plane and what does that mean well delta is now experimenting uh same as tesla with uh planes which are pilotless that don't need pilots at all and that's wow. what that's you know i'm not going to get on one no 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 <laughs> yeah. but, the point is, but the point is i brought my parachute with me yeah, you know, but the, well, that's the, the point I'm trying to make with that simple example is if you go into a factory, if you go into a, a distribution facility, you know, Amazon, you know, if which is one of the biggest users of artificial intelligence, if you go into, you know, a service company, a, a place where, you know, they're, they're teaching students or what have you, and, and everybody has to now do it on Zoom instead of, you know, talking to an actual human being who's teaching them. That's artificial intelligence. That's what's driving the cost of manufacturing down in the United States. That's what's going to make the products that we produce more competitive. And, you know, as, as we do that, you know, our economy, I think, will regain, you know, manufacturing ascendancy, which it's lost to, to, to the people in Southeast Asia. I mean, we've got the brains. We've got the uh, abilities. We've got the materials. We can do it. And we will do it because we have to do it. We're going to see this AI across all industries, including the one you cover uh, exhaustively, Dick, uh, the banking sector. Wh where do you see that this year? I saw a headline saying that, and, and you've said the same, it, investing in banking and bank stocks is, um, it's just not, it, it's just, there's no upside there really as yet. Well, th th there is upside because of the decline in interest rates, right? Mm. Because that improves their margins. But the banks are the biggest users of artificial intelligence right now other than technology companies in the world and if you think about it you know you, when you call a bank you don't speak to a person you speak to a computer and you hit a bunch of buttons and you get done what you need it done and no person comes on the phone if you're you know using your credit card the computer at the bank is determining whether you're credit worthy or not. No individual is getting involved in that situation. If you're a corporation and you have to send thousands of payments to countries all around the world, you know, you're not getting paper money, putting it in a bag, telling some guy to get in a plane, fly to wherever you're going. That's artificial intelligence. You, you move the money, you know, seamlessly, you know, from country to country, from uh, bank to bank, you know, and, and the example I love to use there is you're walking down the street in Singapore, you need 500 bucks, uh, you go to a wall, and there's a machine in the wall, you punch a few numbers in the machine, and in, you know, literally two minutes, that machine has talked to your bank in the United States, it's found out whether you have 500 bucks in there, if it finds out that it has it there, then it sends the, uh, the uh, money to the machine, and you walk away with 500 bucks, you know, that's artificial intelligence. I mean, this thing in which uh, the computer that IBM built, Watson, uh, against uh, that program on television where you, you have to answer questions very rapidly. I forget the name of it. They took the guy who was the most successful on this program 
in terms of you know getting the right answers, et cetera. And they com- and they made him compete with Watson. Jeopardy, Watson- I think you're referring yeah, to. Yeah, Jeopardy, right, right. And Watson be- beat him. Mm. So think what what how can that happen? First, the computer has to understand the question, which is coming in English. It's not coming in computerese, right? Mm. And the computer has to search through billions, literally billions of databases to find the answer. Then the computer has to come back and, and hit the button before the guy hits the button and, and come up with the right answer. I mean, that's artificial intelligence. I mean, you know, that's just unbelievable successes that we can have with the use of artificial intelligence that, you know, essentially um, is going to be what brings the American manufacturing back and the American economy back. And and I think uh, it's the most positive thing that we have going. Finally, your, your outlook for banking, Dick, uh, with declining interest rates, we won't have the kind of pressures we saw that brought down SVB and other banks uh, during March Madness, as it's called. Where will they be in a few months with declining interest rates? We assume they're coming down. But what, what happened is, you know, interest rates went up and the value of all of these securities, treasury securities, mortgages, you know, car loans went down because they had fixed rate, you know, securities. And, and therefore, you know, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank and, and Signature Bank and, and First Republic, they went bankrupt. All right, so then the government said, well, wait a minute, you know, we're not going to let these companies go under just because interest rates went up. But as interest rates come down, let me go back one step. The other thing that happened was as interest rates went up and the value of these securities went down on the bank's books, bank stocks got killed. They, they just got destroyed, right? So now interest rates go down, the value of the treasury securities go back up, the mortgages go up, the auto loans, the value goes up, and therefore the real equity in these banks are rising, and therefore the prices of these bank stocks turned around and started going up when you know interest rates started coming down. And to the degree that that continues to happen, it's going to help the banking industry. But what you said earlier is the more important point, and that is uh, banking in the United States is losing so much ground to other financial companies that it is it is in trouble. Um, and, and, you know, the federal funds rate used to be considered the base rate on which you would calculate loans. But it, but it is not as good as the repo rate, which is the repurchase rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, on, that's a repurchase rate. Let's assume you have a thousand dollar treasury security and you uh, need some money and you don't want to sell the security. So you go to an entity and you say, look, take this thousand bucks treasury as collateral and lend me a thousand bucks. And when, you know, the comes due, I will pay you more interest than you'll get off the treasury security. And that's a repurchase agreement. You've agreed to repurchase that security from the person who loaned you the money. And the differential is what you got in interest plus what you're paying in interest. And the money that the person loaned you is is where the profit comes in that situation. Anyway, the outside of the bank repurchase market has become so huge that a better indicator of what interest rates are in the United States is not the federal funds rate any longer, it's the repurchase rate over the same maturity period. 
So, you know, the banks have lost tremendous ground as a result of that. The banks have also lost ground in the mortgage market because the, the government has now put so many, if you will, requirements on the banks related to mortgages. And I'll give you one that'll just, I may have said this before, but let's assume I, I, you're my bank, you're JP Morgan. And I go to you and I borrow, you know, a hundred grand to buy uh, $200,000 to buy a house. Two years later, I stop making payments on the house. I can then sue you for lending me the money in the beginning because you should have known that I was going to stop making the payments in two years. Now, you would say there's no law in the United States that does that, but there is. The Consumer Financial Protection Agency you know, follows that. And what that does with banks is it doesn't make them want to make mortgages. The FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, they, you know, you pay a premium to the FHA to insure your mortgage. So in case you don't make the payment on the mortgage, you know, you basically, the FHA will pay it. So banks buy the FHA mortgages because they figure they're insured and they'll get paid back. Well, in the great financial crisis, the FHA said, no, we're not going to, we're not going to live up to the agreement because you, you, you shouldn't have made this mortgage. There were errors in the formulation and the, in the documentation, so we're not paying you back. So now the banks say, okay, you don't want to pay us back? We're not going to make any more FHA mortgages. And, and you know, the CEOs of two of the four largest banks in the United States in private conversations with me said exactly that. They screwed us. They screwed us. We're not going to make their mortgages. So, you know, that means that the mortgage sector moves out of the banks to this non-bank financial area. And I believe 60% of the mortgages in the United States, which are originated now, are originated outside of the banking system. So, you know, the banks have got a problem because the, the regulators keep making it more difficult for them to be competitive, whereas this non-bank sector has no regulations whatsoever. It can do so whatever it chooses. So they've lost market share in the mortgage sector. 60% of the mortgages are done outside the banking system. Right. In other words, uh, simple Wells Fargo, biggest mortgage lender in the United States for, I think, a decade, right? They won't make mortgages anymore. If you're a customer of Wells Fargo, they'll give you a mortgage. But if you're not a customer, you're not going to get a mortgage from Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo is now down, I think, to 15th or 16th largest, and I don't know the exact number, 15th or 16th largest mortgage originator in the United States. And that's that's reflective of what's going on in the whole mortgage sector. You, you get mortgages from Rocket. You don't get mortgages from Wells Fargo. Rocket is the biggest mortgage originator in the United States. Rocket is an online you know, mortgage mm. originator. But the question, though, Dick, is if the lending terms are competitive with the banks, is it really such an issue, these non-banks versus the Wells Fargo's? I mean, are they inferior mortgage quality that they're engaged in outside the banking sector? No, but but if you, if, if in that example I gave you, I said, I go to you at JP Morgan and I get the mortgage and then I can't repay it. Then I tell you, I'm not going to repay it. Uh, you know, then you, I can sue the bank. Yeah. You can't sue Rocket. 
you can't, you know, in other words, it's it's a, it's a totally different ballgame. So the, the, the deck is stacked up against uh, the U.S. banks, and now they have these new rules, Basel 2 or 3 or what it is, the end game. They have this re- really strange phrase for us. And so they want to have the banks to have higher quality assets. And uh, so we could see less lending activity out of the U.S. banking sector uh, yeah. this year. Yes. Well, in other words, if the the loan market grows, let's say by ten percent, the banks will maybe get five percent growth. In other words, they're just not going to get as much as the non banks. Now, there is a there is a flip side of that, and that is if we get into a major recession, the banks have a way of generating funds in a major recession. They have FDIC insurance. These other companies don't. And they're simply going to go under, and that's going to create, you know, major, major, beyond major difficulties in this economy. I, I hate cliches, but I'm going to use this word. This is going to be a year of great consequence, a presidential year, interest rates presumably coming down, the banks under this kind of weird stress, and wars all over the world, and yet were. The United States is still standing, we hope, strong. It's going to be just so fascinating to talk about it on Odeon Capital Conversations throughout the year. And we'll have Matt back next week to get his input. Dick, it's been just great. Have a happy new year. We'll be back next week for episode 103. Hey, happy new year to you, John. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.